Sleep. How many of us are getting enough of it? The CDC reports that one third of Americans do not get a sufficient seven hours of sleep on a nightly basis. And that was before a global pandemic and this year of social unrest added to the stress and burden of our daily lives. Not getting enough sleep is more than an inconvenience. It can have serious effects on our mood and concentration as we all have experienced. We all have a general sense that sleep is essential for our well-being and overall health, but many of us may not be aware of the full extent of how sleep can affect our bodies, minds, and lives. The health consequences of sleep deficiency are profound, ranging from poor school performance, increased auto accidents, to heart disease, diabetes, and depression. Epidemiologists are paying more attention to this understudied risk factor as new scientific discoveries shed light on how exposure to both sunlight our morning cup of coffee, and that phone we take to bed with us may be influencing our health and well-being in ways we are just beginning to really understand. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers who are deeply involved with this work. In each episode, we look at a particular disease or health condition or something that we're exposed to in our daily lives that may affect our health and bring you a look at what we currently know and don't know about each of these conditions or potential causes of disease. So today we're going to be talking about the impact of sleep on health with a focus on one of the most directly implicated outcomes, cancer. To do so, I'm joined by epidemiologist and senior investigator Rachel Stalzenberg-Solomon from the Metabolic metabolic epidemiology branch in the division of cancer epidemiology and genetics national cancer institute national institutes of health to co-lead a conversation on this topic welcome rachel hello <laughs> that's a mouthful to get your, uh, <laughs> your affiliations out there um, so thanks for joining us rachel and we are also joined by a guest with expertise on this topic so rachel could you please introduce dr neil caparosa Neil Caparosa is a senior investigator in the Occupational and Epidemiology branch in the Division of Cancer Epidemiology and Genetics at the National Cancer Institute. His recent investigations evaluate the impact of circadian disruption on cancer with recent publications on jet, social jet lag and cancer, a diurnal influence on metabolic markers, and sleep studies. Awesome. Great. So th yeah, thanks for joining us, Neil. This is awesome. Okay, so I think we're going to start this off um, with some general questions about sleep before we get into some of your research towards the end. Um, so first question, why is sleep important for health? So um, Brian and Rachel, thanks for that introduction. And uh, let me say that sleep is an immensely important influence on our health, but it's an understudied area. Mm -hmm. uh, research has accelerated in recent years, along with the closely linked air area of circadian cycle, which is our underappreciated bond to the day-night earth cycle. Mm -hmm. Both of these areas um, are underrepresented in population studies. So I think today's emphasis on epidemiologic research is totally uh, welcome and appropriate. There have been some exciting uh, scientific discoveries in this area that I hope I'll have a chance to touch on, including the recent Nobel Prize in understanding the genetic underpinnings of the circadian cycle. But let mm -hmm. me begin 
by describing an imaginary drug to you. This drug provides an amazing breakthrough. It's a revolutionary new treatment. It helps you live longer. It enhances your memory. It makes you more creative, more attractive. It helps you lose weight, lowers your food cravings, protects you from cancer and dementia, wards off colds and the flu, lowers your risk of cardiovascular disease, makes you happier, less depressed, and less anxious. You're probably wondering, when is this drug going to be approved? How much does it cost? Can I buy stock in the company? Um, and I have some good news for you. The drug is available right now. In fact, all these effects are well documented as benefits of getting a full allotment of sleep. The bad news is many of us are not getting that full allotment. Yeah, of sleep. how do uh, those of us with young kids get our hands on this drug? That's what I want to know. <laughs> well, good luck with that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, that's, I mean, exactly right. I mean, we know, we know, I think, as a general public, that sleep is important for our health. You know, but um, the question is, I think there's a lot of questions about what does that mean? Like, how much is enough sleep? You know, you hear a lot of people say, well, it's different for me. I can survive on, I mean, we have a president that thinks they can survive on four hours of sleep a night or, you know, um, is this true? Uh, you know, what, what do you think is, is how much sleep is best for health? Is it the same for everyone? Is there a range? So there are answers to these questions, but let me just, before giving you the glib answer, um, probably should note that this is an area of profound scientific mystery. Um, really, science doesn't understand why we spend a third of our life in an inert, insensible state um, where we really uh, are vulnerable to predators and insensible to the environment. Sleep must have some incredibly important and largely underappreciated role in evolution for uh, evolution to have made such a commitment. If sleep doesn't do something that's absolutely essential, it was the biggest mistake that evolution ever made. Every right. species studied, birds and mammals, uh, has uh, sleep, and so it must be vital to life. Moreover, it's quite clear from research that we'll discuss that acute or chronic interruption of sleep has devastating health consequences. Right. So to Get back to your question. Um, the World Health Organization, which by the way, doesn't only study COVID, um, <laughs> and the National Sleep Foundation agree that a range of seven to nine hours for adults is ideal uh, and one that we should target uh, for sleep. Uh, but the CDC notes that, and, and as you mentioned in your introduction, that one in three US adults don't achieve those levels. In fact, having less than seven hours uh, sleep. And those figures vary uh, internationally, uh, but pretty much worldwide, uh, we're not getting enough sleep. Um, much higher in Japan for some reason where insomnia hmm. uh, seems to be uh, more common. And I, I think something that uh, the parents in the group will note that um, infants and children uh, and especially teenagers actually require, but don't always get uh, more sleep. And it's mm. a common belief that as we get older, oh, we don't need as much sleep. But in fact, 
Um, that's not true. Um, the recommendations are for similar amounts of sleep uh, in the elderly. Wow. Um, so, so how does a sleepless night affect your body? Well, um, uh, there are uh, actually devastating and rapid effects of um, even one night of uh, lack of sleep. And uh, I could kind of go down the list, but um, one of the profound effects is to our immune system. So um, on a very fundamental level, our B cells, our T cells, production of um, uh, antibodies, all are affected by a lack of sleep. So when your grandmother told you to get sleep to uh, keep from getting infection, she was right. And uh, there are actual animal studies that show that um, uh, murine models in mice, um, they're more susceptible to viral infections, uh, much more susceptible uh, when they're deprived uh, of sleep. Another very, very well-documented area is that uh, there are immediate metabolic consequences to lack of sleep. And this is um, extremely dramatic in that if you just uh, deprive someone of sleep for a week and not total deprivation, just say four to six hours sleep instead of in that seven hour range, uh, you can turn a person with normal glucose tolerance into a pre-diabetic. So you wow. immediately um, start to uh, exhibit diabetic characteristics. The, uh, uh, glucose hormones become abnormal, uh, ghrelin, uh, leptin, uh, and adip adiponectin um, become abnormal. And um, uh, you start down the road to um, diabetes. You also get carbohydrate cravings. Wow. Uh, then there are much more um, common and uh, uh, obvious effects in that your alertness drops off and uh, this increases uh, susceptibility to uh, auto accidents wow. and um, uh, yeah. problems in that whole area. Mm -hmm. And um, one other issue that's relevant to students, and I hope we have uh, many students in our audience, is that uh, the practice of doing an all-nighter um, is right. uh, bad from a sleep uh, point of view because sleep consolidates your memory. Yes. And if you fail to do that, you may cram that material in by uh, skipping a night of sleep in the library. But the next day, um, your hippocampus won't convert it from short-term right. to long-term memory. So uh, that long-term memory trace is going to be degraded. And uh, it may not pay off for you in terms of that uh, A grade that you're hoping for. Absolutely. So those, those yeah, are just a few, a few right. of the effects, the short-term effects of lack of sleep. Well, I'm uh, going to tell my teenagers that. Really, and I wanted to, uh, <laughs> there you go. We'll see if they listen, but, uh, but absolutely. I wanted to elaborate on that last point, you know, which is how it affects your cognition. So I, I should say, I didn't say this in the intro, but my area of research is dementia and cognition in, in older adults. And there's been a lot of work on how sleep affects you know, your risk of dementia and, and just more generally, even when you're younger, um, just the effect it has on your cognitive abilities. I can tell you from personal experience how true this is. You know, when I, uh, you know, every now and then I'll have bouts of insomnia, as many of us do. We're going to talk about that 
I'm sure in a second, how many of us may suffer from insomnia. Um, but you know, the next day I'm, I'm a mess. I, you know, I can't, can't get my brain to work the way that it, that it normally does. I can't access information. I can't access words. And I can imagine, you know, and there, but not just imagine, but studies have shown that long-term this has devastating effects on your ability to form connections between, you know, the synapses of your neurons. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of evidence that, as you said, we don't know what sleep is for per se, but we do know that it is very important in forming memories and in forming these neural connections between your brain's uh, cells. And then the last thing I want to say about this, just because it's my area of research and I find it so interesting, is there was, there's been new research just in the past year showing that during sleep, during the, um, the REM cycles, actually the toxins in your brain that may cause Alzheimer's disease actually get flooded out and cleansed through your CNS. So they actually kind of um, get pumped in and out of your brain, almost like recycled. And I don't know a lot of that about that. It's not my area of research, but I found that so fascinating. It could really be a mechanism for why sleep is so important in, in lowering your risk for dementia. So Brian, that's an incredibly exciting and emerging area. The glymphalytic yeah. system yes, the glymphalytic um, is system. a kind of new uh, discovery. The mm -hmm. idea that your brain basically has a waste pump and yeah. during sleep, you pump out the waste and get rid of it and your brain kind of cleans up. It's like at night, the street cleaners come out that's and right. sweep that's everything right. and make it ready for the next day. And yeah. uh, it's... Uh, uh, hard to imagine what the consequences are of not doing that. And I think uh, you're right. We'll talk a little bit of this as we go forward, but the consequences of lack of sleep are cognitively are especially profound in early life and late life. You refer to dementia in late life, and we'll talk about that, but in early life, REM sleep is when children basically construct the cortex. So in animal models, uh, the cortical structure is constructed during REM sleep. So if you, uh, and they've done this in animal models, wake the animal up and uh, interrupt REM sleep, uh, the cortex is severely, um, neuro, the neurodegenerative effects. And so um, you really require, it's an absolute requirement of the developing uh, organism and humans so, you know, I know that in pediatrics, there's always a debate. Do we uh, wake the, the baby up to feed him or do we let him sleep? And uh, my opinion is, not being uh, especially informed in pediatrics, but that the sleep is super important. And that's what I think should be emphasized. And they can eat when they get up. I agree. <laughs> I think the parents would agree too. All the parents agree, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so, so what are common sleep disorders and how prevalent are they in the United States? So, um, the uh, um, American Sleep Academy documents over 200 different um, sleep disorders, but the most common primary sleep disorder that results in referral to a sleep center is obstructive uh, sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, that's a serious uh, sleep um, disorder. 
that um, is characterized often by snoring um, and periods of apnea or cessation of breathing uh, during sleep. And um, uh, generally that uh, requires sleep studies to make a uh, precise diagnosis. And the I've done this. Of, pardon? So I said, I've done this. So after you talk about this, I can tell anecdotes about how it goes. Oh. Yeah. Yes. And uh, it's a, it's a uh, condition that's uh, more common in men and it's becoming, it used to be extremely rare in the pediatric age group um, with the obesity epidemic. Um, it is becoming unfortunately more common uh, in children and, um, and diagnosed uh, more frequently in children. Um, sometimes can be treated by uh, tonsil and adenoidectomy, um, but um, it's, uh, it's a common and serious uh, sleep disorder. But the most uh, probably frequent and common uh, sleep problem is insomnia. And insomnia affects um, a, a very large uh, proportion of the population but maybe 10% uh, in prevalence actually meet the criteria uh, for uh, inability to sleep in spite of having the opportunity um, mm -hmm. to sleep. So it doesn't count if you have two jobs and you get insufficient sleep. Um, right. But if you're at home and uh, able to sleep, but um, have the opportunity, but can't sleep, um, that's uh, insomnia and it's a, uh, a uh, complex disorder with many uh, different causes, mm -hmm. um, but affects about one in nine uh, folks in the United wow. States. Wow, wow, one in nine. That 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 jives with my experience talking to people and my own personal experience. Um, well, you're going to talk about some more, but I just wanted to again inject my little personal anecdote, which is that I I went to a sleep doctor last year thinking that I had insomnia. Well, I knew I had insomnia, right? But then what I had actually that they diagnosed was undiagnosed sleep apnea. And that was what was causing me to keep waking up at night. And um, so I was lucky. I didn't even need the CPAP machine. I just have this little mouth guard that just actually moves my jaw forward. And just that little bit of movement forward keeps my air passage open and I can roll onto my back and not wake up and, and sleep. And so it was just very interesting that I, I had the wrong mechanism, you know, in mind that was, I thought I wasn't sleeping because I was anxious and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, no, if you just, if you deal with your airway blockage, you'll sleep. And sure enough, they were right. Now I sleep fine. So. I have a question that I just thought of. Um, Please do. With, with the dementia in older age, mm -hmm. does the type of sleep disorder, is that associated? Like insomnia versus yeah, question. The, um, um, the sleep? There's um, a lot of research on, on that exact question. And actually there's, sorry to Neil to, to play yeah. expert here. You're the expert, but because our group does some work on this, I can speak to this, that, you know, there is a question as to what came first, the chicken or the egg, you know, on this, because sleep fragmentation is a, a problem with a lot of older people where they, um, you know, and I'm sure a lot of us have uh, very old relatives that just kind of, you're in the middle of a conversation with them and they'll just kind of start dozing off, twilighting as we call it. Um, and so sleep fragmentation is when you don't, have, you know, your wakeful period during the day and then your sleep at night, you know, as two separate blocks. It's when you just kind of sleep over the course of the day in little bursts. And um, 
there's some debate as to whether that sleep fragmentation is actually causing dementia or whether it's an early sign of dementia, right? So you may not be having the cognitive um, testing showing you have dementia yet, but it's kind of an early step along the pathway that's showing that your brain isn't maybe functioning the way that it should be. Um, so there, there is a lot of research as to these specific types of sleep problems related to dementia. Neil might be able to shed some more light on that too. So I agree with everything you said, Brian, and I'd, I'd say a word about um, uh, the actual structure of sleep in relationship to dementia, and that is um, involving sleep stages. So as you uh, likely know, um, sleep is divided into REM sleep and then a number of stages of non-REM sleep. And mm -hmm. actually those types of sleep are as different from each other as sleep is from wakefulness. And we have a lot we need to learn about what happens during each kind of sleep. In fact, there are stages of non-REM sleep characterized by different EEG brain waves, but Let's just talk about those two big categories. REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep is when you dream and non-REM sleep is the other category. And you go through your sleep cycle in 90 minute um, periods in which you start off with a non-REM period and then you end up with a REM period uh, when you have dreaming and you go through the night uh, through that in a number of 90 minute cycles until you wake up. Now, that happens, uh, that changes over the course of your lifespan. And one of the things that happens with aging, relatively recent discovery, is that your non-REM sleep begins to disappear as you get older. And this is thought, it's a hypothesis, a lot more study needs to be done. And as you can imagine, there have been a lot of studies of sleep in populations but we haven't had the epidemiologic tools to always look at sleep stages in relationship to these important endpoints. So the degradation and the disappearance of non-REM sleep with aging may be related to dementia. And that may be related also to the sleep fragmentation that you pointed out. I'd like to mention that um, one of the research studies that we are currently doing is an actigraphy, uh, which all actigraphy is, is a kind of monitoring um, of movement, uh, like, a, like a watch um, on your hand, just like a smartwatch, um, that uh, can detect uh, periods when you have wakefulness or sleep fragmentation and the, the proportion of your sleep period when you're actually awake. And those, that fragmentation of sleep is also uh, related to dementia. And what we have shown is that it's related to also mortality and related to frailty in a cohort that we followed over a five-year period. So um, that work has actually uh, been submitted. But right. um, I We've think, shown the same thing in our groups, uh, in our cohorts, really? actually. Yeah, yeah. we do so, the same thing. So uh, a bottom line and a take home for uh, uh, epidemiologists, I think, is that we need much more research on the components of sleep um, and uh, using devices, getting beyond simple questionnaires yep. to dissect uh, the fine structure of sleep 
and its Absolutely. relationship to all these important uh, disease endpoints. Right. I guess that was a, oh, no, no, go ahead, Rachel. Sorry. That was a question that was, we were going to ask is as an exposure, how is sleep measured? Yeah. And you touched upon that some. So um, just to add a little bit to the exposure question is obviously if you go to a sleep lab, they're going to do the polysomnography. They're going to hook you up to uh, uh, EEG. They're going to yeah. put a pulse ox monitor on your finger. It's awful. Uh, they're going to put an actigraph on <laughs> Sorry, your sleep researchers. I, I, I hate to say the sleep researchers, but in my experience, you don't sleep very much when you've got 20,000 right. wires coming out of your head. But anyways, got to do what you got to do to measure it. So Yeah. So they're going to they're gonna do a lot. And the issue from epidemiologic point of view is that it's hard to do that in a cohort study. Right. So right. we need simpler and more uh, direct measures of sleep to get at these important uh, endpoints. And one um, uh, feature, obviously, as well, do we have great questionnaires? And can we use those questionnaires to dissect sleep? And, mm -hmm. you know, what we have tried to do is say, well, how many hours do you sleep? And uh, can you keep a sleep diary and record it? Um, but those kinds of measures are clearly inadequate and they have been criticized in the literature. Yep. For example, when you compare a sleep diary to sleep as assessed by actigraphy, by a wrist monitor and movement, um, typically they differ by as much as half an hour. Um, in the time when you actually sleep compared to the recorded sleep. And so yep. there's a lot of bias and a lot of uh, misclassification. So we have to do a lot better. Other big gaps in the epidemiologic uh, characterization of sleep is that without more sophisticated device uh, assessment of sleep, we lack any assessment of sleep stages. So we can't tell if you're REM and non-REM sleep, um, uh, how, how we can't characterize that. We also don't know something that's extraordinarily critical, which is the timing of sleep. So we can't tell anything about chronotype, which is whether you're an owl or a lark. That is a lark, a person that goes to bed early, gets up early, wakes up early in the morning, bright and early, or an owl, goes to bed late and wants to sleep in and get up late. So those um, are two characteristics that are partially genetically determined and probably have profound influences on health that uh, as of yet are not uh, super well documented. Interesting. Yeah, I do, but this is really interesting stuff. But I, before we moved on, though, I, you, were, you were talking about some common sleep disorders. And I know we talked about insomnia, um, uh, apnea, but I just want to, you know, you might want to briefly mention some of the other ones that we discussed beforehand that we wrote in our little outline here, because I think they're important to highlight. So um, there's an extraordinary number of sleep disorders. Right. Um, I'll mention two others. Just Not all 200, not all 200. No, uh, there's non 24 hour <laughs> sleep disorder. Mm -hmm. which um, is a interesting um, uh, disorder where uh, it typically occurs in persons that lack sight, blind persons, 
Um, and this relates to a new scientific discovery in anatomy. Now, it's very rare that anatomists make new discoveries, but around the turn of the century, they actually did. And the new discovery was that there are cells in your retina that convey light directly to the hypothalamus of your brain, to the suprachiasmatic nucleus. They're called ganglion cells, and these cells were only recently identified. They have nothing to do with vision. What they do is simply, uh, they're totally concerned with circadian timing and the timing of the day. They convey the day-night signal to your brain and say, hey, brain, wake up, it's daytime. Going back even a little further, a profound mystery in circadian biology is that for many years, it was unknown what is the body clock. Now, the body has a clock because every living organism had to evolve to uh, correspond to the day-night cycle on Earth. So we evolved to do that. And as we became multicellular organisms, uh, we developed structures in our organs and eventually in our brain to control that, to coordinate our body with day night. Right. So um, a mystery was, what is it that signals the clock and resets it every day? Because of course, depending on your latitude and season, the day length is different. It varies from you know just a few hours to as many as 24, depending on where you live. And so there has to be something that signals that. And scientists wonder, well, is it social factors? Is it drinking a cup of coffee in the morning? Is it having breakfast? Uh, what is it? And it turns out the answer is sunlight. So sun and only light in a certain wavelength, around 760 nanometers, hits your retina, goes to those ganglion cells, goes to your brain, suppresses melatonin, and starts the daytime program. Now, why is that important? That little excursion was to tell you that if you are blind, totally blind, and you lack access to those cells, your body clock can't reset. And so what happens is it does a thing called free running. Your body clock free runs, but it doesn't run on 24 hours. It runs slightly different. And so you get totally out of sync. So if you have a job, you may find that during the middle of the day, your body clock is saying, it's time for bed, you're going to sleep, good night. And you literally can't function. So what to do? Um, Scientists have tried to give melatonin, which is the sleep hormone, and um, that didn't work. But they have uh, treated this with a drug, a pro melatonin agonist, and that drug actually has proven effective in some people. So the treatment for non-24 hour um, in uh, individuals that free run um, is this drug, and it has been effective in some people, unfortunately doesn't work in others. So that's another interesting interesting. uh, circadian sleep. Yeah. that's very interesting. And I think it ties into something that we, we, you know, we're going to talk about, but maybe it's a good segue. I'm going to guess that that range of light that you were talking about is blue light. Is that correct? Yes, blue green light. That's right. And that is why 
the uh, blue green light or the blue light feature on your phone that now uh, your iPhone allows you to set it to night setting where it turn it you know the it, the screen displays more yellowish and it, turn, it cuts out some of that blue light because I think we've discovered that that is what when you're staring at your phone at night and that blue light is look is shining into your eyes it's telling your brain stay awake stay awake stay awake right exactly so so you know maybe we're jumping the gun here but you know, I think it's a good time to talk about, we have had actually a previous episode, I should tell you, on screens and how screens affect your health. And so we talked a lot about this already, so we don't have to belabor it, but I think it's cool from a sleep point of view to show why a screen before bedtime is bad, you know, because it's telling your brain, stay awake. So let's talk a little bit about light at night. Yeah. Okay, so we discussed already how you require the sun to set that program. And there are two problems in the modern world. Problem number one is most of us are not sleeping outside. So when we wake up, it's not to the sunrise. We're waking up indoors to indoor illumination. And so we're not getting that signal as strong and as bright as we would like. Second problem is that many of us don't work outside. We work indoors with indoor illumination. And while we may feel that that indoor illumination is really bright, in fact, it has only a fraction of the intensity and the extent of wavelengths, uh, particularly wavelengths in that critical area that the sun has. So, um, we're suffering from two problems. Not enough light in the morning of the kind that we need and insufficient light during the day to sustain us. And then a third big problem is at night, the light is still there. It never goes away. So right. uh, we're getting uh, continued illumination at night. And as you pointed out, we bring our cell phone with us into bed and uh, uh, even with the screen blocker, we're unfortunately getting that uh, light in that critical range. Now, I have to tell you, there are some papers in the last year that say, well, the wavelengths may be a little broader than 760. There may be some oh, in the yellow range, too. Uh, it was a paper in PNAS. And uh, so it Just may be turn that screen, black screen and white. blocker story is a little more complicated. <laughs> Um, nevertheless, the screen blocker is probably helpful, but the best thing would be to keep your bedroom as dark as possible mm -hmm. and get out in the sun. And by the way, it doesn't matter if it's cloudy, you're still getting a lot of that light. Um, and get some sun, particularly early in the day. If mm -hmm. you don't do that, you are dampening flattening your circadian rhythms and flat circadian rhythms tend to lose their mooring mm -hmm. and then you get what's called circadian disruption in other words you start becoming like that blind person and then problems begin to ensue right absolutely and i can i can imagine it's not just the light you know like when you're when you're looking at your phone at 11 30 p.m and you're doing all sorts of stuff, email or surfing the web, you're also keeping your brain 
active and not allowing it to kind of slowly wind down, right? So it's not just the light, just <laughs> I would assume. Exactly. Right? No, no, yeah. um, a big issue with insomnia, everyone recognizes is anxiety. Mm. And in our COVID pandemic world, yes. uh, we have enough of that already and uh, stimulating yourself uh, with the latest whatever from the outside world um, when you should be going to bed and winding down is not a good idea. Um, so get your dose early in the day, you know, limit it and then um, cut it off. Right. Is a recommendation. Great recommendation. See how many of us follow it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's not necessarily one everyone's going to yeah. jump on, but. So with the light at night, is there a geographic variation about where, where you live? Because in some time zones, the sun goes down later. And does that affect, is there any evidence that that affects sleep geographically? So um, this touches on one area of our research. In fact, we hypothesized exactly that point. Um, the idea is the following, that we proposed that um, people in the Western area of time zones would be at higher risk of circadian disruption and possibly cancer than people in the Eastern version, in the Eastern areas of time zones. Now, why would this be the case? Imagine two people, one lives in the Eastern time zone in Boston and the other lives uh, in the Western area in Western Pennsylvania. Now, what's the difference between those people? Both of their alarms go off at eight o'clock, but the person in Boston gets up at eight o'clock and the sun is rising. So they get up and their sun shines on their retina and their daytime program is signaled. The person in Pennsylvania is on the other hand, getting up essentially in the dark. They're forcing themselves to get up. They're cutting off their sleep. Um, they're losing the last half of their REM sleep. Um, and uh, also the, the problem is that the sun will be shining later in Pennsylvania after it has already gone down in Boston. So this is a kind of a chronic jet lag of about an hour that mm. affects people in the West in every time zone compared to people in the East. And so we did a study looking at SEER rates of cancer in communities relative to um, the longitude meridian uh, based on whether your community was in uh, the West or the East. Hmm. And in fact, uh, taking into account and adjusting for all sorts of different factors, including latitude, poverty, smoking, um, uh, the population density of the community, urban, uh, rural density, uh, the amount of light in the city, et cetera, et cetera. We did indeed find a uh, effect of increased rates of cancer um, for those in the Western portions of time zones after taking into account a variety of confounders, including latitude, poverty, uh, urban, rural density, age, of course. Um, and uh, this 
study was quite large. It included 4 million uh, cancer cases based on SEER. And we found increased rates for a number of cancers, most prominently breast cancer, which was our a priori hypothesis based on the association of breast cancer in shift workers that are thought to have circadian disruption. Um, so we are now, uh, this was in SEER, so it was only done in 11 states, um, but we're trying to repeat this work using NACER data, which will have almost all 50 states uh, and a much larger sample to see if we can uh, reproduce this finding. Wow. So uh, conclusion is that yes, it, geography could have uh, a effect based on a subtle um, uh, influence of the time zone. That's really fascinating. So well, now that you've started talking about some of your research with cancer, let's let's elaborate on that. So, you know, so, to me, yeah, how does how does lack of sleep lead to cancer? That is something I'm uh, intrigued. So, by. let me rather than go through a list of papers, I, I'd like to tell you three themes that I think are important, and maybe these are areas that someone out there in the audience. Um, can um, think about as an area of study. I think uh, for young epidemiologists, these would all be cool areas. Because there you go, grant ideas, everyone. These are grant ideas. Take notes. Yeah. <laughs> the first area is that uh, we feel that questionnaire assessments of sleep are inadequate. And mm. this has been described in the literature. One of the big names is a guy named Aaron from Cologne, Germany. But um, you know, you'll find a lot of commentary on this. And so uh, we need biomarkers and we need device-based assessments of sleep as we discussed earlier. And in particular, we thought, wouldn't it be great if we could uh, assess a biomarker that could characterize sleep itself or pressure for sleep or whether somebody um, had a degree of circadian disruption. And so we have conducted some metabolomic studies uh, using a broad range of markers to look at the relationship of um, metabolomic markers to sleep and uh, using studies in a sleep lab uh, with colleague uh, Beth Clareman at uh, the Brigham uh, uh, to look at um, the relationship to uh, circadian variation. So we believe that, um, well, we know that 15% of markers vary in a day, a diurnal kind of uh, night-day pattern. And so we wanted to characterize that in humans and um, see if uh, we could assess the body clock, in a sense, by measuring these markers. So we've actually published some work in that area, but a lot more work on much larger samples needs to be done. Our, our first study in this area used only three people that we kept in a sleep lab for a number of days. And uh, I can tell you that keeping someone in a lab with a catheter in their arm to collect blood every uh, two hours mm. is actually uh, involved kind of study. So yes. um, much more work needs to be done and uh, this would be an exciting area because 
it would be great if you could uh, get a blood sample and say, yes, based on a, a, a characteristic group of markers, we can tell you that your uh, body clocks are out of sync or That's out really of sync with uh, the solar clock or mm -hmm. out of sync internally in, with your organs. Because while there is a brain clock, a central clock centered in the suprachiasmatic nucleus of your brain, the hypothalamus, there also are um, clocks in every organ that mm. are arranged hierarchically. So uh, if they get out of sync, bad things happen. So your liver, your kidneys, your digestive system, um, your skin, everything uh, has a clock as well. And so wow. the relationship between those is really not been well studied. So that's one area. Okay, biomarkers area, for sleep. Biomarkers area one. For sleep <laughs> okay. And circadian rhythm. And circadian Second rhythm. area is that we noticed all the shift worker studies mm -hmm. um, that have been done uh, to assess uh, disrupted circadian rhythm and uh, cancer and other diseases. And what these try to assess is acute um, fragmentation of your circadian rhythm in relationship to disease. But we believe that subtle, more subtle, chronic disruption is probably having an effect, but we've never assessed it because we don't have a fine enough way to assess it, and we haven't had studies on large enough populations. So that was the aim of the time zone study. And we think more studies, uh, larger samples that um, can try to uh, assess this are really important to do. Hmm. And um, these studies could probably use devices to detect um, degrees of social jet lag. So we haven't talked about social jet lag. Yeah, tell us what that means. Social jet lag is the idea that you go to work every day and you accumulate a sleep deficit. Mm -hmm. And then on the weekend, you make up that sleep deficit. Mm -hmm. So in large populations, and this is work done by Till Rowenberg in Germany. Um, and by the way, I recommend to all of your listeners that they get on the, the web and they look up Till Rowenberg and Chronotype and fill out his questionnaire because <laughs> about 350,000 people have done so, cool. gathering data on Chronotype. So you fill out the questionnaire, it will ask you questions about when you sleep and when you get up on weekdays and weekends, mm -hmm. and it will tell you uh, what your Chronotype is, which chronotype. is really cool. Huh. Um, and you'll also be contributing data. So okay. that's a really nice thing. Hmm. Uh, so if you're curious about this, um, yeah. I suggest you, you do that. Um, uh, but anyway. Um, Wait, idea... Sorry to interrupt. Oh, yeah, go ahead. But so social jet lag is saying you're not just talking, you're not talking about night workers or night shift. You're saying no, for all I'm of us, for we, all of us, we get up, we go to work. Maybe we get up earlier than we wanted to. Our alarm goes off. We're still sleepy, but we get up because we got to go. Although, you know, now with work from home, it's a little different. But anyway, <laughs> in a normal wor world, we're getting up, yeah. we're going to work and, um, and not getting that sleep that we actually need. And then we try to make it up on the weekend. Right. right? And that, so and that's... Depending how much we sleep in, 
and mm -hmm. it's assessed by the midpoint of sleep. Mm -hmm. um, we have an hour, two, three of social jet lag. In fact, only 17% of the population has no social jet lag at all. In wow. fact, most people have a degree of social jet lag. The equivalent, if you have one hour of social jet lag, it means that every week you get in a plane and fly an hour away <laughs> and then fly right. back. Now, wow. does that degree of circadian disruption have an effect? And the answer is, there've been some studies but nobody really knows. So mm. that's an, a gap in research that needs to be um, addressed. We are trying to do that in NHANES um, mm. right now, um, but so. much larger studies are needed, more data is needed. So I think this is an area uh, where work needs to be done. Right, and NHANES is a large population-based study in the US. Right. For the listeners who don't know what NHANES is, um, right. Right. Okay. It's a nationally representative probability sample uh, representative of the United States. Exactly. So where there are uh, waves of data on 5,000 or so subjects, including laboratory physical mm -hmm. exam, uh, demographics collected uh, and released every two years. So it's a right. spectacularly wonderful yeah. Uh, resource for all epidemiologists. Exactly. But but just going back to this social jet lag idea. So is the research shown or is it still undetermined whether getting that sleep on the weekend to make up for that social jet lag um, can kind of close the gap or is it not good enough? So that's a great question. And um, I have to say that research shows that both naps and uh, uh, weekend sleep to some degree is helpful. However, mm. there's also the belief uh, that you can never totally repair sleep deficits. Mm. So you really um, don't want to have accumulate a chronic uh, sleep deficit that you're probably, gotcha. you especially don't want to do it when you're very young. Right. That that's a, um, you know, a bad thing to do. So uh, what, you is, may talk. what is Go your ahead. definition of very, a very young, what, what is, well, is while your brain is developing. Oh, because so when you're a child. Yeah, child. for sure. sure yeah. um, you know, your while your brain is developing, um, for example, teenagers, that REM sleep is absolutely critical in, um, developing the brain and uh, establishing impulse control. Mm. So it's pretty clear that teenagers uh, during an early period of adolescence don't have much of that impulse, you know, so driving is a little bit dangerous, drug behavior, sexual behavior, in all sorts of domains, teenagers are more risk takers. Mm -hmm. And uh, as they get a little older, they suddenly look around and go, whoa, I shouldn't have been doing that. <laughs> Um, and that's a if they get enough sleep development uh, issue. And uh, again, uh, Claremont, uh, one of our collaborators from Harvard, has shown uh, in a JAMA pediatrics paper that sleep deficits are associated with all sorts of adverse um, markers in teenagers. Um, everything mm -hmm. from poor academic performance 
to uh, drug use to um, basically a lot of bad uh, outcomes are associated with uh, deficient sleep. So you really want teenagers to get that sleep. And by the way, um, uh, I don't know if this will come up in the time we have remaining, but there are societal issues to sleep beyond individual issues. So we tend yes. to focus on, yes, right. you know, uh, don't drink too much coffee, mm -hmm. um, you know, and turn your lights off. But to some extent, society structures things so that Absolutely. teens have to get up early. Mm -hmm. And yet the distribution of chronotypes in gigantic samples shows that teens chronotypes are later and that's a biologically fixed feature that if you force teenagers to get up and get on a school bus at 645 there's just it just goes against their biology right, and it's right. a, it's a problem it really absolutely and also i think we would be remiss to say that you know everyone you know it is in many ways, a privilege to have a job where you can choose when you're waking up and getting enough sleep and whether you're doing a day shift versus a night shift. So, you know, not everyone in society has the same control over those abilities. So I think we should definitely mention that. Um, so it's not just a personal choice. There's definitely a lot of contextual things that shape our sleep. But, um, you know, we only have 10 minutes left. So I just want to make sure that we cover just if you can tell us some uh, mechanistic ways that you believe sleep drives cancer risk because that that is to me uh, you know we talked about all these things that sleep does that's good for you and lack of sleep is bad for you but how does it actually uh, seem to lead to cancer so if I had to pick one mechanism that I think is most important and there's probably 20 hypotheses Mm. Um, you know, everything ranging from immune surveillance um, to uh, various biases. So in the shift worker studies, you know, there are many epidemiologists have to be very careful in that uh, shift workers can differ in terms of poverty, uh, ethnicity, smoking, um, uh, all, also, all the usual concerns that we have in designing these kinds of studies. But um, uh, I think the immune mechanisms are incredibly important. I think the inflammatory mechanisms are very important. But my personal favorite is that I feel that either disrupted sleep or disrupted circadian variation uh, causes um, changes in insulin and increases mm. in insulin resistance. And I think uh, our work, cross-sectional work uh, in NHANES shows that this in turn uh, is associated with higher levels of inflammatory hormones, uh, decreases in key vitamins like uh, vitamin D uh, and vitamin C, mm. uh, elevations in uh, liver, uh, proteins like uh, SGPT, GGT, and SGOT, um, and um, uh, other changes that I think in toto uh, can promote certain tumors uh, and also promote uh, obesity. And we're aware that obesity is itself related to uh, 13 different uh, 
tumors. Mm. Also adverse changes in lipid um, uh, metabolism. So um, that's my personal favorite uh, mechanism. But gotcha. I, think, I think everyone would admit that there are many, many uh, mechanisms. And um, mm -hmm. if you look at the literature, uh, you know, there are chapters on reasons why there are associations of poor sleep and circadian disruption with cardiovascular disease, with uh, pulmonary disease, with uh, asthma, um, and you know you can you could pick up certainly pick up other mechanisms, and uh, absolutely research is needed in all of them. Mm, fascinating stuff. What are the measures that you propose to to sleep better? Okay. What, what would you tell our audience? So I'm going to give you ten quick. Um, factors that I think everyone would agree could be helpful to get a better night's sleep. And um, the first one is that it's great if you have a certain schedule and a routine uh, around your bedtime. Uh, that's a helpful factor. A second is we haven't had much time to talk about uh, drugs and medications, but for sure, uh, caffeine, alcohol, and nicotine are really important. If you're a smoker, stop. If you uh, <laughs> drink coffee, do it in the morning. Mm. Caffeine half-life is five to seven hours. And mm. uh, you really don't want to be drinking a lot of coffee late in the day because it's going to hang around and impair your sleep. Mm. Uh, and alcohol, while some people say, yeah, I'll have a nightcap uh, and that'll help me sleep. No, alcohol actually suppresses REM sleep. It may anesthetize you early, but it will... Yeah. Uh, disrupt your sleep late. So you really don't want to drink uh, close to bedtime. Mm -hmm. A third factor is you want to avoid heavy eating uh, close to bedtime, heavy eating or drinking. You also don't want to necessarily go to bed starving. You know, you want to mm -hmm. have a little something, um, but um, avoid extremes close to bedtime. A fourth factor is that sleep medications are generally not such a good idea. You'd rather use other measures. Mm -hmm. All the sleep medications have uh, problems. They may provide a short-term help if there's an, a, a specialized circumstance, um, but generally uh, sleeping pills uh, are not uh, really recommended. Uh, fifth, get out there in the sun. Get some daytime sun, and that will really help you, especially early in the day. Um, Naps are good if you have a sleep deficit, but don't nap late in the day because it may uh, cut your sleep off um, at night. Keep your bedroom dark and cool. Okay, put your TV somewhere else and put away your phone. Uh, beds should be for sex and sleeping and uh, not for playing games on your phone. And if you have to use your phone, uh, one of those uh, blue-green screens is probably a good idea. A uh, ninth point is that it's good if you can relax before you sleep. You may not uh, want to solve the world's problems or address your relationship issues at 11 o'clock at night. Um, so try to have a relaxing bedtime routine if at all possible. And uh, yeah, the last point is those gadgets in bed are no. So gotcha. If you can do right. that, that should uh, take you in the right direction and get you Very a good nice. night's sleep.
Very helpful. And thank you so much for that. I will also add from my personal experience, if you're having problems sleeping, go get checked out because it could be a very simple fix to your problem. Like I said, I had no idea I had this undiagnosed sleep apnea and that there was a simple jaw device that I could use that all of a sudden has cured my sleep problems. So um, highly recommend that. You may have to endure these sleep labs like I did, but they had to get the information to, to know that I had sleep apnea. Um, so it's a little small sacrifice in the, uh, in the, for the end result of good sleep. So, Brian, that's really important. I totally agree with that. I forgot one key point. Temperature is okay. important. Keep your bedroom cool. Uh, yes. Taking a bath before bed is a good thing because it causes vasodilation. You expel some heat, cools mm -hmm. your body temperature, and that's helpful. So cooler uh, is better. Good. That's what we do. That's great. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much. So I think this is a perfect place to end the episode. And I'd like to thank Rachel for co-leading this conversation. And I'd like to thank Neil for joining us on this ep episode and providing us all of this expertise on sleep. So before we go, if you're an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research, like I say every single episode. And hopefully we've gotten some new members. Uh, membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which hopefully is coming up in this year in December in Boston. Um, it also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you.